coast that throws it down. Welcome to Coast to Coast, an NBA podcast by the fans for the fans. My name is Chris, and hosting with me is my guy Ronan. Tune in every week as we dive into the hottest content and emerging rumors across the league. Dodgers pulls up three pointer. Don't miss a beat. Whether it's a star on the move or the Knicks acquiring another forward, we got you covered. Zion for four for four! Welcome to the NBA! The game is constantly evolving, and whether it's by the eye test or advanced stats, we'll give you the analysis you need to take your fandom to the next level. Here's Davis, 4-3 in the win. Oh, it's good! Anthony Davis has won it for the Lakers! Sit back and relax. Coast to Coast starts now. All right, guys, welcome back to another episode of Coast to Coast. Got my buddy Ronan here again, as always, man. How you doing? I'm good, man. I'm good. I'm, uh, I'm a little, 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 little tired. Been, I had a few late, night, late nights watching the ball, but I'm, uh, I'm uh, excited and re- ready to talk about what's gone on over the past week. Well, it's got you conditioned for me figuring out my uh, technical difficulties for the past two hours, so... Uh... <laughs> I, I appreciate your, your patience. <laughs> We've been sitting here for an hour just trying to figure out how to get the voice out. But we are here. We're dedicated to get, get this content out. And we are dedicated to stay within 12, maybe 15 minutes or less. We're going to run through some important stuff we saw over the last week. And we got some very special content at the end. So stay tuned for that. But Ronald, let's jump right into it. What's the first thing you want to talk about here? Well... A big kind of the big story of the week has kind of been the Lakers surprise surprise you know they, they just they just happen to be that you know those those minnows that just happen to be the big st- story of the week for once <laughs> but they've won four straight and they've gone to overtime in three straight games now and they've come out with a win in each one I mean it's been a been a pretty crazy week for the Lakers but uh Although they've got four wins, I, I have to imagine that one one LeBron James is not too happy with all these overtimes. In literally the same week where he's so mad that they have this all-star game planned out, pissed off that he's he was promised that he's going to have a rest period. Um, all I can think about is that viral video where he's like, I'm 36 years old. Are you kidding me? <laughs> he has 71 days between winning his fourth championship and kicking off the 2021 season which is just, I mean, it's look at Jimmy Butler, how tired he's been. I mean, think about 36-year-old LeBron James. This is the the highest usage he's had in a long time. Three games in a row going into overtime. This is crazy. I, I don't know, number one, how he's surviving it. Number two, how he's continuing just to be so prolific in these games. It's It really just tests the the limits of his athleticism. It's It's unreal. Yeah, I think yeah, we are we're, we're always waiting for the moment for him to crumble, but instead he just keeps keeps continuing to to define the odds. Just shows how much effort and work he puts into keeping himself healthy and uh, and training his body to be able to go through all this. It's uh, it's just you just have to have to respect it whether you li- whether you like him or not. Yeah, they get two wins here um, without Anthony Davis. The other one with um, it's impressive that they've been able to eke out these wins, but. On the other hand, I don't know who who do you give credit to the most? Um, the Lakers for pulling it out in overtime or 
the Pistons and the um, the Thunder, both teams who we would not consider um, by any stretch of the imagination being toe to toe with LeBron and the Lakers, managing to take them into overtime. Um, not necessarily concerning in the long run for the Lakers. I think maybe more impressive for these teams, but um, it's it's tough to be putting, like you said, LeBron in these positions where he has to be playing heavy minutes. He's played 130 minutes across these three games. Um, I guess, does this mean more for you for the Thunder, more for you for the Pistons, or does this speak to the Lakers maybe getting a little bit lax against these teams, not really going as hard as they should be to just end the game within four quarters? Yeah, I'd say you probably got to give respect to the to the teams like the Detroit and, and OKC for for doing the job. I mean, yeah, it just it all comes back to it. I mean, the Lakers they they just show that they're they 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 are able to kind of take it handy in these games and they can still come out on, on the right side of it. So, I think there's going to be a, more than a few occasions of that this year where they kind of don't they're not going off full hell for leather like they were last season and they just be. The main aim for them is just to be fully fit and ready come the postseason. That's that's Absolutely. their sole focus. Yeah, I mean that that's the thing. They haven't rested LeBron once this season. Mm. He's averaging well over thirty-five minutes a game. Um, he's averaging highs in, in minutes played per game, and they're gonna play. We're recording this now on a Thursday night. They're playing tomorrow night on Friday. The Memphis Grizzlies, who are just known for their physicality and. It is a nationally televised game, but I think we'll, we, I mean, we have to see LeBron rest that game. We'll see if he ends up playing. Um, but moving on from the Lakers here, we, we mentioned that the Pistons had taken them to overtime, didn't get the win, but they did get a win against the Nets. Now the Nets are without KD. That's a whole subject in and of itself, but they just suffered their third straight loss. Maybe no panic, but more of the same criticisms coming to them about their defense, their effort, turnovers, and just the inability to overcome deficits. Um, are you concerned at all? This is a question we're going to ask every week, probably. Yeah, I mean, of course, the, the defense is going to be a problem, I think. Uh, the, big, the big thing that people always say is kind of like offense, offense wins your games, but defense wins your championships. And I think that could come, come back to bite here, but Kind of the main thing I've seen over the last thing after the KD fiasco, which was just just looked bad on everyone involved, especially the NBA. Like they said he's not allowed to play. Then he came in late in the game, and then they had to pull him from the game, uh, all due to COVID, uh, COVID tracing. And then, but the main thing I kind of took from these games, of course, they bounced back with a win against the Pacers last night. But I'm just looking at it as Harden and Kyrie are just nowhere near the same animal as. Durant with either Harden or Durant with Kyrie. I think uh, Durant is kind of, as we already knew, he was the the, the cornerstone of the team. But uh, he's definitely, if, if it was him with Harden or him with Kyrie, I think they uh, they probably would have would have won a couple more of those games. Yeah, it's so obvious his defensive impact when he's off the floor. Um, he they just have how many times in these games have you seen? Players go right from the wing, right to, to the interior, and there's nobody there. DeAndre Jordan is, you know, we, we, we remember him fondly in his days in L.A. on the Clippers being this, uh, this interior defender beast. You can't score inside on him, and that's just not that guy anymore. He's not that guy. He hasn't shown any signs of being that guy. And, man, they're really missing 
Jared Allen. I mean, he was a key cog in getting um, James Harden. You make that deal 10 times out of 10, but you know, they have to make a move here. I mean, I think it's pretty obvious at this point that, you know, now that Kevin Durant's off the floor, um, they have just nothing else defensively. Jeff Green can't do it all in his own. He's not a primary point of defense. And realistically, too, um, just seeing how dramatically different their defense is without Durant, you know, Durant can't do this all season long. He, I mean, he's coming off that, that Achilles injury. He looks great offensively. There are some points here and there where, you know, there's actually a discussion about how many dunks he's had this season. He has had, um, he's on pace to have his lowest amount of dunks over the year. And that's usually a prognostic factor of like players on the decline, physically at least. So, I mean, we'll take that for what it is, but you got to protect this guy. You got to give him more defense. I'd like to see them more active and you'd like to see this team just be, have a little bit more pride. I, I think is what it comes down to. You can talk all you want about the X's and O's, like what they didn't do against who was the worst defense or worst offense in basketball, the Detroit Pistons dead last in offense. And they just allowed them to score at will. They put up 38 first quarter points, which was after a 13 0 run. So there's just points in the game where they don't seem like they, they coalesce around one guy, you know, like you, you saw Harden barking at Jordan for, for defensive air who it was off of a lob where it seemed like him green and Jordan just weren't communicating. Nobody was communicating on that end. And, you know, this is an issue of chemistry. It's an issue of team building and it's an issue of, of personnel and we'll see how they fix it, whether that's through free agency um, another trade, or maybe they just can figure it out by communicating better. Who knows? Nash has got a lot on his hands right now. Yeah, it's important that he got that experience and of, of, uh, of coaching around him. So that will help, hopefully, hopefully, will will have a positive impact on the team. I think not going to judge them yet. Of course, we ain't going to really judge this Nets team until until we see what they do in the playoffs. That's that's the. That's the facts. We're going to keep on talking about them. Don't get me wrong. We're going to be talking about them every week, but the, the, the playoffs is where we're really judged and see what this team is like. Yeah. And a couple of teams that we want to talk about, I want to compare and contrast here because the Bucks and the Clippers, two teams we've maybe not counted out, but I mean, across the league after they folded the Bucks embarrassingly against the, the heat, didn't even stand a chance the way the Clippers let the nuggets get back on them and just how, uh, defeated they looked in the playoffs they've come back in an impressive way this season and in a season where there's been a lot of variance so you don't know what you expect from game to game they've been very consistently elite and just want to talk about some of these um, aspects of both these teams how they've changed they're, they're not the same team as last year I think we can we can definitely say now um, so the Bucks right now they're boasting the best net rating in the league right now scoring 119 points for 100 possessions. And that is three points better than last year. And that's three points better than uh, last year, the, the Mavericks, who are a historical offensive team. Um, and I think really this is an interesting point in time to talk about the Bucks because the biggest storyline coming into the season was Giannis. And was he going to leave? Is he going to stay? And then when he ultimately decided to sign, I guess we all the talk has been about whether it's only a matter of time before he leaves. Can this team really contend? And the rest of the Bucks, despite them not picking up that third star, they've really stepped up. They're right now making 42% of their catch and shoot threes. Last year, they're at 
Middleton's making 50% of his catch and shoot threes. And right now he's, I mean, is he the most underrated star? And I, I call him a star. Some people, they, they question, he's absolutely a star in my mind. He has to be the most underrated star in the league. I mean, he's improved as a playmaker and his shot making. You see how he controls the ball in the post, in the mid post. He looks like Kobe <laughs> out there in certain games. And he's shooting right now. 52% from the field, 45% from three, and 94% from the free throw. And he's doing it on excellent efficiency. He's doing this really consistently every single game. So I I wonder, have they changed your mind at all in terms of viewing them not as this successful regular season team that can be figured out? Have you have you seen enough change in how they're their bench is producing who right now on, on top of their team being one of the best three-point shooting teams, their bench is the best three-point shooting bench of the league. And they had some great additions there. I mean, have, have these changes convinced you that maybe they can contend this season? I'm still not convinced just because I thought they were going to be the big contenders for the last two years and they haven't been. So Obviously, there's been improvements. Their stars have continued to get better. They've added in a few extra peaches, like uh, like Drew Holiday, like the the bench guys that they've got in. It's just it's gonna come down, like I said, the Nets. We're not gonna know with this this Milwaukee team uh, until until the playoffs come around. I think it's just a mentality thing of being able to take that extra next step to to being competitors to getting to the to the finals. I mean, I said before, I was kind of like, I don't know what I wanted to see from Milwaukee this year. Like, did I want to see them lose in the regular season? That would make me more convinced that they could win in the postseason. I don't really know what I wanted to see, but it kind of <laughs> just seems like it's a similar sort sort of kind of thing. They're just kind of easing their way through the the um, the regular season, and it's just it's going to come down to what they can, what can they produce when we get to the playoffs that's that's just the end goal for me because they they've done this for two years now where they've they've improved year on year and dominated the the regular season yeah it's tough right like they've been so damn good every regular season that you know it's like it doesn't convince you of anything anymore and and even even though maybe you can point out a whole bunch of stats you could have done the same thing um last year with with the historical um rate of uh threes cut uh made by uh the bucks created by Giannis rather and a bunch of other stats that have demonstrated how the bucks have been successful in regular season but yeah it is it's, it's true like that's that's a one metric of success that the bucks have not shown and it's the playoffs and maybe that's their you can't really have a conversation in the regular season about them without having that asterisk and mm-hmm. it really prevents any conversation going much further than that, but I, I think it's been impressive to see, you know, Budenholzer's use different lineups. He's relied on his bench a lot more this season. You're not seeing Giannis uh, on the floor um, with the bench unit. You're seeing the bench unit run a little bit on their own. You don't have to rely on Giannis for everything. And mm-hmm. I think having that variability is the important thing. Um, you 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 see these different lineups up there. You see a little a little bit uh, switchiness on their defensive schemes, and it's something you don't usually see from Budenholzer. He's going to usually go for his, the lineups that he knows, the, the schemes that he knows. And 
he's going to work it all regular season long. And then I think the problem has been is the fact that that doesn't work in the playoffs when you're going to have to switch things up. So I think it's good to see that there's been a little bit of variability. And it sounds like that's, you know, we, we talked about how Budenholzer is going to be on a hot seat if he can't figure it out this season. So for him to change that, I think that's that's a huge thing. But let's talk a little bit about the Clippers here. We're, we're, we're going to stay on time. We're, we're doing pretty good right now. Um, <laughs> two guys that haven't been talked about enough at all. Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And the things about their game, not just the scoring, not just the defense, but the playmaking. They're averaging career highs right now in assists. And this crazy stat is that they are assisting on almost 50%. They're assisting on 48.6% of all made baskets on the floor for the Clippers. And for a team that, you know, traditionally you think about um, championship teams, maybe you have uh, traditional playmakers, point guards, and they don't have that. They, they run their, their team through Kawhi. They run their team through Paul George. And right now they're the number two offense in the league, top five defense. They've been like that since the jump. Um, how do you feel about them in that same conversation talking about the Bucs? Do you feel differently about the Clippers than you did when they fizzled out in the playoffs? Yeah, I think so. With George, of course, I mean, he made the comments about how he was kind of pissed off about how people were kind of judging him after last year's playoff performance. And it's kind of always been a thing that's hung over George about how he kind of crumbles when it comes to playoff time. But the big thing I was always thinking about Kawhi Leonard was the fact that his he showed his best form when he kind of felt like he was playing with a chip on his shoulder after he was traded by San Antonio. And I feel like after last season, he's he's having that same sort of year this year. And I think that that's really having a big impact on why he's playing so well and why the team is doing so well. So I definitely think that they're in a better position. But again, it's going to... We'll, we'll wait and see on, on George uh, if he can bring this this form in, in, into the postseason. But Kawhi's definitely got that, that bit of a chip on his shoulder again. It's it's motivating him to to try and prove a lot of people wrong. And I think that that's really working for the Clippers. Yeah. I see I'm I'm super convinced of the Bucs. I'm I'm very behind the the strides they've made. And I'm I'm very impressed by the consistent dominance by the Clippers. I guess I, I, I'm wondering what amount of regression is coming for their shooting. Um, Nick Batum is shooting a career 46% from three. Um, Paul George, I, I, I don't think he's going to be shooting 48% from three all year long. Serge Ibaka's I, 38% from deep. That's, I mean, that's possibly doable. The looks he's been getting for sure. Um, Marcus Moore, Moore shooting 46%. Uh, yeah, that's, that's not saying I, I think the, the streakiness of some of these guys will come to an end at some point. And you wonder if, if that shooting goes away, what, what, what do they, what do they turn to? Cause right now they don't have the interior, uh, presence that they had with, uh, Montrez Harrell. They went from a top three interior scoring team to bottom third this year. So I, I wonder they've, they might have a few moves still left on the horizon, I think, in order to balance out their roster. But um, I, mean, I am a little bit worried about how they will manage if their shooting streak goes down. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's definitely that's definitely a very fair fair concern to have about uh, 
about this this uh, this Clippers team? Well, we did it. We well, we didn't quite do it. We almost did it, but we got a lot closer than last time. <laughs> we did not go super over our fifteen minute mark. But here, I want us to go into a break, and when we come back, we're going to bring to you our first part of a mini series we'd like to introduce, and. I'd like to posit the name of this. Don't trust the process. We'll be right back to talk about some more. Yeah, you. you listen this far, whether you fell asleep, left your phone in the other room, or maybe you liked what you heard. So please don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you can get our content every week. In the Christmas spirit, we are doing a special giveaway for our day one listeners, and all you have to do is be subscribed to the pod, follow us on Twitter at CoastNBA, and Instagram at Coast to Coast NBA Podcast for a chance to win. Now, back to the pod. Building a successful team in the NBA is tough. 30 teams vying for one trophy, many battling just to be relevant. We've passed through several eras of basketball, which has led to this dynamic player-centered market that we see today, which has pushed organizations to their limits to construct title contenders. It all began in 2010 when the league was flipped on its head when two-time reigning MVP LeBron James announced that he would be bringing his talents to South Beach to form the first super team with Dwayne Wade, Chris Bosh, and this moment, the paradigm of team building was changed forever. Two titles later, LeBron would depart Miami in 2014 and build another trio in Cleveland with Kyrie and Kevin Love. However, the homegrown dominance of the Warriors challenged the Kings' plans as Steph, Clay, Draymond, and a well-oiled machine of role players began to dominate the league. They went on to win 67 games and defeat LeBron in a convincing 4-2 game series and continued to dominate the league again the next year by breaking the Jordan era's Bulls record for regular season wins. But with health, LeBron's assembled super team in Cleveland would prevail over the Warriors the following finals series, and they realized that in order to contend, one star wasn't enough, two could maybe have you in the conversation, but if you wanted a real chance, you needed to have an elite trio on your team. So enters Kevin Durant, and his decision to join the blue and gold the following season solidified this era of the super team and the Warriors reign of terror over the league pushed teams out of relevancy and extinguished any hopes of contention. As LeBron continued to stranglehold over the Eastern conference, it seemed much of the league settled for mediocrity and tanking for draft odds. And only Daryl Morey and the Rockets seemed to dare to build a team that could even challenge golden state. And in their own right, made a mark on team building through one man shows and Harden. But as the years went on and the Warriors continued to dominate, an opportunity arose in which Masai Ujiri and the Raptors risked their entire franchise on a one-year rental of Kawhi Leonard that would ultimately lead 
to the city's first championship, an end to the reign of the Warriors, and usher in a new period of parity across the league that we see today. So in this mini-series, we aim to bring to light the various aspects that are involved in team building, what dynamics have affected the team building throughout the past decade, and what makes them successful. We're going to define what defines a rebuild and answer the question, at what point a rebuild is even finished? Right now in the NBA, there's a handful of teams in different forms of limbo, and we need to talk about how they push forward with their rebuilds. I want to talk about the Chicago Bulls, the Charlotte Hornets, Sacramento Kings, and finally the Minnesota Timberwolves. And by the end of this series, we want to answer big questions about how teams build, how they make their decisions, and how these organizations should move forward. And I want to ask Ronan here to introduce the most important team to be talking about here, near and dear to my heart, the Chicago Bulls. So Chicago built one of the great NBA dynasties during the 90s. But since that team broke up after their last championship in 1998, Jerry Reinsdorf has just been trying to recreate the magic of that Jordan-led Bulls team of the 80s and 90s. Throughout the early 2000s, they consistently changed the blueprint for how they wanted to build their next great team, seemingly changing from youth to experience year on year, along with gritty defense to exciting offense. They made a return to the playoffs in the mid-2000s, but were still without a star. Then the, dra the draft lottery appeared to come to their rescue. The Bulls earned the rights to the number one pick in the 2008 draft after having just a 1.7% chance beforehand. This pick would turn out to be Chicago native and future youngest MVP in the league, Derrick Rose. They now have their cornerstone piece to build around, and they did that very successfully, making the playoffs in each of Rose's first seven seasons, including an Eastern Conference Finals appearance in a year where D. Rose won MVP at just 22 Tom Thibodeau was uh, one coach of the year, and the Bulls won 62 regular season games. Everything appeared to be set up for a Bulls to compete at the very top level for many years to come, but their star man's injury problems, which have plagued his entire career, would begin in the following season, and after winning 2011 MVP, Rose would play just 49 games over the next two years. Following their most successful campaign since the Jordan era, the Bulls picked up unfancied forward Jimmy Butler late in the draft, and with Rose never being able to return to his MVP form, Butler developed his game and became the new team leader after winning Most Improved Player in 2015. It appeared he was ready to bring the Bulls back into contention after losing Rose. In the 2016 offseason, the Bulls traded Rose to the Knicks, and it looked as though they were set to fully commit to Jimmy Butler as their guy. But following clashes between Butler, his teammates, and the coaching staff, after an up-and-down 2016-17 season, Butler was traded to the Minnesota Timberwolves for young guard Zach Levine, Chris Dunn, and the rights to Larry Markkinen. And the Bulls were back to another rebuild. And so it began. I love the oral history there, Ronan. Thank you. That was beautiful. <laughs> um, it was such a roller coaster. The mentioning Rose, trigger alert for any Bulls, at, Bulls fans out there. But it's been a tough journey. You know, the Bulls are in the midst of another rebuild, just down this road of, of walking in the shadow of the championships of the Jordan era. And really what we want to do is, you know, as, as you looked back there, 
at the recent history of the Bulls is identify the different strategies that these teams have employed and, and what they've done to get back into contention um, and maybe what strategies they, they haven't done at all. Um, and one thing that we really need to talk about is you know, how um, they've built through the draft. I think one thing that you can commend the Bulls for, and I will give credit to Garpat, <coughs> as difficult as it is sometimes, but really the thing that the Bulls are great at was um, talent acquisition through the draft. They were able to get guys like Ben Gordon, Heinrich, Noah, and Rose. I can't give him credit. That was like one of the luckiest moments really in, in Bulls history. Um, but drafting guys like Taj Gibson at 26, Jimmy Butler, who's the last pick in the first round, these are all guys that were able to contribute to the period of uh, time where they were, you know, the only thing standing between them and a title, maybe not a title, but at least competing for a title was LeBron James. And a lot of teams, it's going to be the same old song of, of being stuck um, going against the goat of this era, at least. Well, that's a whole other <laughs> conversation, but um, seeing how they've rebuilt this team, they're at a really tough point because there comes a point in time where you've built through the draft, you've amassed your talent. Um, you've even made a trade for who their best player is right now, Zach Levine. Um, and you got to decide, do these pieces fit? And that's a big question when it comes to um, decide when a rebuild is done. Uh, Cause we'll talk about this moving forward, but seeing a lot of these teams pull the trigger too early on a group of guys that aren't meant to be together um, is a tough thing. And that leads to your rebuild failing. That leads to committing to the wrong guys. So, I mean, I, I guess I want to take, get your take here. You see this collection of young talent that they've built through the draft that they've, they ultimately traded their star away. Um, I think that's, that's a key thing we'll see amongst these teams is, you know, they, they felt that Jimmy Butler had reached his apex. He had reached his highest value. And what they didn't want to do is sign them to a supermax and have a lot of dead cap on their hands. One thing the Bulls have been very smart about is keeping their books clean and signing good contracts. And unfortunately, part of that is you don't keep your maybe superstar you don't think is number one. But given that all they have right now is a handful of young guys, you're not sure if they fit together, and Zach Levine, how do you feel about them right now? I think uh, there's just, it's just a big question mark. It's kind of hard to answer from from uh, from the outside. I think looking at Zach Levine, you're kind of like this guy is this guy should be a franchise superstar, no doubt about it. He's a three level scorer. He's been he's been unbelievable basically over the last the last two seasons, and it's just a question of whether the young guys around him are going to be able to develop into stars that really complement him to the best level to get them back to to competing. So then the ultimate question at this moment, Levine is probably at his highest value in his career. The question comes, do we commit to him and start building around him or do we ditch him and go back towards the draft? That's, that's just what it's going to come down to for Chicago. Yeah. And that's the, that's the risk, right? You run the risk of you. Yes. You sell on your, on your, uh, on your best player. You, you sold on Jimmy Butler and you got a bunch of um, assets out of it. You diversified your risk, you could say, through the draft, through young guys. But then Jimmy Butler went on to 
drag that Minnesota Timberwolves team to the playoffs, really push the 76ers to contention, and then bring that Miami Heat team all the way to the finals. Um, so this is a guy who, upon leaving the Bulls, had remarkable success in his own right on teams that he had no continuity with. So I guess I, I, I look at this and you have to think about who the guy is. And I'm not sure Zach Levine is that guy. And this is not, nothing against Zach Levine at all. He's a fantastic player. I mean, you, everyone's been praising Bradley Beal this year, looking at him as he's the best offensive player in basketball right now, no doubt. Um, on 7% less usage, his stats look pretty similar to his. I mean, he's he is scoring less. It's 27 points a game to Brad's 33. 5.2 rebounds is 5.1. 5.3 assists to his 4.5. And same amount of steals at 1.2. And his field goal percentage, albeit on lower usage, is much more efficient. So this is a guy who is absolutely a top five offensive talent at the in the backcourt. And the question is, like, can you bring it on defense? And I, I don't know if that's it. Can you have your best player be a guy who can't be, you know, at least your third best, fourth best defender? Can you have a guy who's at best average? And I don't know, is, is Steph Curry an example of that? He's not the the Warriors' best defender, but he's not a negative. He he provides okay defense, and that's enough to, to balance out his incredible offense. But then perhaps he's just an exception. So that that's the decision that it hinges around. And also it gets more complicated when you, you talk about these other young guys, Kobe White. And then these, these two guys made history against the Pelicans last night. Um, the, what was it? They, they had 17 combined threes between the two of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the first time that's happened that they've two players have shot eight or more threes on a duo. And yeah, that's I'm kind shocked. of the punishment. I'm shocked that the Splash Bros had not done that. I, I know that that was crazy to me, right? Like I, I cannot believe that that hadn't already been done, but um, it's, it's tough when we talk about these rebuilds, it's also tough to not get caught in the moment. And I think that's happening right now with the bulls. We are caught in 2019 February when Lowry Markinen is averaging 24 and 11, you know, that that's, that's a flash. And when you see flashes from these young guys, and sometimes that's what we say, all you want to see is flashes. You love to see flashes, but where does that go from there? Um, how, how often did you see Porzingis have, have flashes of greatness and not be healthy and not be consistent? And even him, we're considering what he is right now. How much more so for Lowry Markin, who hasn't even reached the apex of those flashes? Wendell Carter Jr., I'm, I'm not so sure how I feel about him not having the the shooting ability that you saw in college. He's not really been used too much in the playmaking aspect that you hoped. And the defense, I mean, the defense is excellent. Defense is amazing. But as an undersized center, it's tough to be building around two front court guys. So I guess when, when we talk about these teams, we talk about the Bulls in particular, their strategy has been to trade their best player, get as many draft assets as possible and build through the draft. But then you hit the critical point here, which is, do you now sign these guys? Do you keep them? Or do you keep going? Do you keep selling off assets until maybe you find the right thing? Um, maybe you don't have an answer now. We, we discuss that later. But those are, those are the questions that need to be answered by the Bulls. And it, it needs to happen soon. You got 
um, Lowry marketing coming up on his restricted free agency. He didn't sign that extension. Um, Zach Levine has only uh, one year after this season left on his deal. Um, it's, it's coming to a point where you can't just build in the draft forever. Eventually, you're going to have to decide what you do with all these assets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's gonna. It's that's why. That's why the front offices are paid these big books. They gotta make. They gotta make these calls. And uh, the Bulls have gone a few different ways. And uh, maybe it's just time that they they commit to a guy and just roll with it for once. For even even if it's only for the next three four years, they just maybe it's just time that they they just give they give they give a guy a go. They give a guy their full back and they just roll with it. They've got the new head coach in. Maybe it's. Maybe it's time to roll with a team and see and see if he can he can bring them bring them back to back to being contenders. Yeah, and that's and that's the question that we'll we'll be answering here and, and maybe not even answering, just positing. It's it's something to think about. Is what do we define as success here in the NBA? Um, the height of success is obviously a championship. You know, twenty nine teams don't win the championship every year. Does that negate the success that they've had over the course of the season? Is there something to having a competitive team that competes in the playoffs that, you know, can at least bring some sense of pride to a city, especially a city like Chicago that has just been begging for a successful Bulls team for a while now. Well, I think uh, when you have Chicago Bulls, I think uh, success, uh, it all, it all comes down to, to, to a ring after, after Jordan. I think Mm -hmm. if it's not a ring, it ain't, it ain't success, but uh, on the flip side, a team where, uh, maybe just being in the playoffs would be would be seen as success is the Minnesota Timberwolves. Timberwolves have been in arguably the longest rebuild in NBA history. Uh, began back in 2005 when they set about building a new group around all-star Kevin Garnett. Well, when they traded Garnett to the Celtics in 2007, they began a complete overhaul, which has brought just one playoff appearance and one winning record in 13 seasons. After drafting Kevin Love in 2008, it appeared their team may begin to turn it around, but the front office failed to bring in quality around Love, and he left Minnesota in 2014 to form that new super team in Cleveland. While this was yet another blow to the franchise, they did receive the number one picks from the two previous drafts in Andrew Wiggins and Anthony Bennett. The signs were good despite their uh, abysmal 16 and 66 record as Wiggins was named rookie of the year. And they won the draft lottery where they would select new franchise cornerstone, Carl Anthony Towns. The Timberwolves have failed to successfully build a team around Cap capable of challenging having rented Jimmy Butler for a year in 17, 18, they did make a playoff return along with their first winning record since KG. Since then, though, it's been year after year of struggle. And after trading four towns to, to get, uh, sorry, after trading to get Towns' longtime friend, D'Angelo Russell, and having the number one pick in the 2020 draft, there is hope. But uh, darkness still reigns over the Minnesota Timberwolves as a franchise. And I think that darkness has to emanate from drafting Ricky Rubio and jo- was it Johnny Flynn. The point is, I don't even remember Flynn's first name over Steph Curry. <laughs> that that's <laughs> that's going to be the the damning decision for this franchise forever, if you really think about it. 
but th- this is a really interesting case with the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves. You know, they've, like you said, it feels like they've been rebuilding forever. A lot of teams are like this. It's this chronic issue of, of not building enough to compete further in the playoffs. And I think the biggest issue that they've, they've really had is, you know, they don't have pieces that fit. And that's the thing that we're like, we just talked about that with the bulls. Um, and that's the issue here. And, and that's a concern for me and a concern for a lot of teams is they haven't had a team around cat that has worked out because really the goal, I think that when you build through the draft and they've done that successfully, they, they got their star, they got Carl Anthony towns and they even drafted, um, they drafted, uh, or sorry, they traded for Jimmy Butler. For them to have made that move and to made it into the playoffs, I, I think that there has to be some level of organizational dysfunction that has led to them not being successful beyond that. I mean, you look at how Jimmy Butler didn't even want to be there anymore. They didn't respect the the work ethic they had. There just wasn't that same vibe that he's found in Miami, that vibe that he found with the 76ers. Um it almost feels like the the Timberwolves are doomed to repeat what they've already been through is um, competing with KG and then losing him to another team that wins a championship with him. It seems like that's that's a history that's doomed to repeat itself. Um, but do you feel like this is the moment where you sell on him though? Do you make that decision to hit the complete reset button? And it's a little bit different when you compare the situations between the Bulls and the Timberwolves here because you know, Carl Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler, Jimmy Butler as a competitor, you know, he's unmatched, but as a talent, you have to think that you do absolutely everything to hold on to Carl Anthony Towns. But it seems that teams like the Timberwolves who have um, managed to find their star, but not really done much with it. It's their, it's their mediocrity and in, in trying to just uh, to almost tread water and not make splashy moves that they don't, get the extra star they don't get the extra moves that get them into contention um d'angelo russell for sure it was it was a splashy move in order to get somebody who he wants to play with um but it wasn't really the move that you think they needed they didn't get in more defense they didn't get um that that pick and roll playmaking that you'd want to have alongside carl anthony towns and um i think right now they're in a weird no man's land where they should be competing but they're rebuilding by accident almost and as we go through uh these patterns of how teams have rebuilt it, it feels like like we said with uh, these chronic issues of rebuilding that um they're not trying to rebuild right now <laughs> they accidentally walked into a number one pick in anthony edwards um and a big part of rebuilding is your scouting how are you looking at at uh the guys that you pick and it seems really interesting for me. We talked about this when we were talking about the draft that they went through this whole Andrew Wiggins saga where they, they got their, their talent in him. They thought he was going to be the, the future, but all these red flags, they, they ignored, you know, the, the efforts, the, um, the shooting playing and they just picked up on that guy in Edwards. So where do you feel they, they stand right now, given all these question marks and um, I think, questionable decision-making on an organizational front. Yeah. I think it's just, it's just a poor, poor work from, from the front office, really. I mean, KG never really had 
much around him, but he was still able to kind of bring the team to to the the playoffs uh, without ever winning a series. But other than when that one, he won MVP and they went to, went to the to conference finals. But I mean, they kind of just seem to wait around, find their star, and then they're kind of like, okay, you go and just do it now. I mean, they've committed to stars. Like that's kind of what the way they've gone about their rebuild has been kind of mainly kind of looking to build from the draft. As we saw with love, they got love in and, and they, they thought he was going to be a star and then they just, they never really did anything with it. And ultimately he left. Then they get towns in and they've not really done anything. They got Butler in for that year, but I don't think they ever really had any faith that he was going to stay for any, any longer than that. Obviously that worked, but nothing else since uh, now they've got, another number one pick in Anthony Edwards and you're just kind of looking at it is if they see this guy as a star as much as when when you look at him now it's just he just there's something not not quite there when you look at at uh, young guys with the potential to for stardom so I think maybe if they see something in him maybe yeah maybe now's the time they commit to him and they move on from towns but I just don't see that happen. I don't think they know what they want to do as a franchise, but in terms of the individuals on the team, if I'm Carl Anthony Towns, I'm thinking it's time to start thinking about moving on. And that's that's the the biggest fear for this franchise. And they they have to think about this, I think. Um, you know, they they've tried everything. You know, I, I think I you can criticize them for, for not having made, you know, big, bigger moves and, and try to build more around Carl Anthony towns. Um, but I think this past year they've, they've definitely committed. They, they got D'Angelo Russell. They got, uh, they got in Malik Beasley, who was really just hot last year. He was shooting about 60% from three for a stretch. He was looking like uh, he was the guy next to in, in the backcourt with D'Angelo Russell. Carl Anthony Towns, and I think at a certain point, you know, if it, if it doesn't work out and, and things, you've already tried it once with Jimmy Butler, you traded young guys in a pick for Jimmy Butler. Um, do you do it again with Anthony Edwards? Do you, do you trade your young guys again and try to bring someone in for Carl Anthony Towns? Do you kind of repeat this this cycle as, as we talked about? Um, and that that's a big question. Um, they and you think about what they did for with Kevin Love too. That was their young big, their young star, and they traded him in order to get Andrew Wiggins. And they traded Andrew Wiggins. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. it seems like it's just been this weird rotating cycle of talent in Minnesota that just hasn't amounted to anything. And maybe at the end of this, it's just a curse. <laughs> Who knows? But um, I think as we go on and we look at the strategies that have been used by successful teams. And we compare that to how the Timberwolves have been building. Um, you think b- besides perhaps the scouting, besides the the poor drafting history of the Timberwolves, um, you feel like they've done a lot of things right. You, you feel like they've they've made the right moves. They they were aggressive in in hiring Tom Thibodeau and trusting that he'd he'd do something right there. And they were aggressive in building a team that he wanted around Carl Anthony Towns, around Jimmy Butler. And now the, the way they've amassed assets, you'd think that it leads to something good, but 
it's weird for a team like this to have made so many what you would think maybe good decisions, then it just hasn't amassed to anything. Yeah, I think the final point on them, just just for now, I think if there is enough value in Anthony Edwards to move him on right now and be able to bring in another star, similar to what they did with Jimmy Butler, I think they should definitely do all that they can to make that move. If not, they should look at moving on from Cat. I know they're not going to do it, but it just to for Cat's career, if they're not going to be able to commit to him, they should let him move on and thrive during the, the prime years of his career. Yes, I mean, the, the Cavs were on the receiving end of that Andrew Wiggins-Kevin Love deal that allowed them to build that super team there in Cleveland. Um, it would be funny to see uh, maybe the Timberwolves be on the opposite end of that deal to to get a more established star to help Carl Anthony Towns out, to help them get to the next level. That would be, I think, a, a weird reversal of, of history. A, a guy who's been compared to Andrew Wiggins for so long now to be put in the opposite position as him back then. Um, but I think a team that's also had this chronic issue of, but in this case, self-inflicted rebuilding, self-inflicted dysfunction is the Sacramento Kings. And, you know, keep killing it with these, these oral histories. I, I need to hear, hear about the, the Sacramento Kings here. What, what's been going on with them for the past decade? Well, Let's make it. Let's make it. Uh, let's lay it out there. It is not easy to be a Kings fan, a front office member, a coach, or a player. Sacramento have not made the playoffs in 14 seasons, and the only real bright spark they've had during that time is that they can look back on the fact that Tyreek Evans won Rookie of the Year back in 2010. I mean, the last decade in particular has been a struggle. The Kings have consistently had one of the worst records in the NBA but have not managed to earn number one pick. The early years of the 2010s were dominated by dysfunction and various parties trying to move the franchise away from Sacramento to go along with failing draft picks and dud trades on the court. However, since the Malou family sold the team in 2013, things have begun to turn around in a little bit, but it's been a slow process. 2017 saw kind of the first glimpses of rebuilding being successful as the Kings traded DeMarcus Cousins to the Pelicans, receiving now franchise starter Buddy Heald. In that summer's draft, they selected point guard De'Aaron Fox, now the franchise cornerstone. They showed commitment to Fox as their franchise player in the following year's draft by choosing to draft center Marvin Bagley over highly touted point guard Luka Doncic. This move was criticized by fans and media, but it showed that they had a plan in place and they were going to give it a chance. In the two seasons since, the Kings have shown they are capable of making the push to be playoff contenders, finishing in ninth place in the West in the 18-19 season with a 39-43 record, their best record since last reaching the playoffs in 2006. And 19-20 was once again a positive campaign as they are one of the 22 teams invited to the NBA bubble following the resumption of the season following COVID-19. In this past offseason, they signed star guard Fox to a bumper new five-year deal and acquired Tyrese Halliburton in the draft, who is showing signs of being a star in this league. The question for the Kings now is, what's the next step to go from 
promising team to playoff contenders. Yeah, they're in this weird place right now. Promising team has been a tag for them for the past three years. I mean, they're very excited. I mean, they were they were a um, league pass legend a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. I mean, it was so fun to see things come together for De'Aaron Fox to come together for Buddy Heald and um, Bogdan. And, you know, you, you talked about their, their history a little bit. I, I think it's, it's interesting for the Kings. You know, we, we talk about these, these cyclical um, stories of some of these franchises, the way they've been run. Um, you look back on when, you know, when they were called the greatest show on the court and they had Jason, White Chocolate Williams, Chris Weber, Mike Bibby, um, Tarkaloos, all these guys who were, they were just an exciting team. And this is why, I mean, the Kings did have a, a fandom and they were exciting to watch. Um, but what they did at, at the end of it is they let it fizzle out. They let these players depreciate in value and they had pivotal moments where they could have traded and started rebuilding then, but, but they didn't. They held on to their assets and they decided to retool, not rebuild, and never amassed any draft capital. And that's really what we've seen for longer than a decade now, is since that time, they've just been really just floundering in mediocrity to just plain bad. And talking about the draft, Tyreek Evans, man, he was, he was exciting to see him win Rookie of the Year. He looked like a guy that they'd be able to rely on, and then they ended up getting Boogie Cousins and it's a same story. You got an exciting guard and a dominant big, even though maybe Marvin Bagley can't even be compared to that level right now, for sure. And Isaiah Thomas, and even <laughs> back then getting Jimmer, Jimmer Fredette, back when, back when he was uh, splashing threes from 35 feet. And where is he now? He's dropping 70 points off in China. <laughs> and they just missed they missed on a lot of guys i mean besides those two picks and then obviously they they got fox uh in 17 and bagley in 18 um every year they they were just constantly a bad drafting team a lot a lot of teams miss you know like it's it's not easy to hit in the lottery uh which will again in, in this in this series we definitely want to touch on on how hard it is to actually hit on real talent but those names i just mentioned like uh, armory caspi jimmer Fredette. Thomas Robinson, Ben McElmore, Nick Stauskas, Willie Colley Stein, uh, some I can't pronounce this, Papa Giannis. Like these are guys who were drafted in the lottery and didn't end up doing anything for them. So I mean, drafting has been a major issue for the Kings, not being able to capitalize on how bad they were. I mean, they were good at that every year. It's getting into the lottery, but actually figuring it out. You'd think that a team that knows are going to be the lottery every year would just have enough time to focus on that all year round. <laughs> and then they just still suck at it. Meanwhile, the Spurs are picking in the late twenties and getting stars left and right. But it's, it's been tough for, for a team like this to not have proper scouting to, I mean, even understand that Marvin Bagley is not Luka Doncic. <laughs> like, I think mm-hmm. even most people would have agreed about that. Um, an important thing too, not just in drafting, but we want to look at their um, decision-making as a front office. Um, Vlade Divac took over in 2015. Um, this is a typical thing that you see with a lot of new GMs. They have to make their mark in a team. And whether you decide to flip that team and trade off all your assets and, and rebuild in that moment, which you've seen in teams like the, uh, like um, the Thunder, where they just sold everything and started anew 
Vlade decided to be aggressive in free agency and he filled up the capture. He got Rondo back in 2015, Costa Kufis, Marco Bellinelli, Karan Butler, and that led you to nothing. And it led you to having no cap space to acquire picks. And that's, that's a huge thing. That's the strategy we want to emphasize and talk about is teams that rebuild the quickest. You see them make these smart moves and keeping their, their books empty so that they can take on bad contracts and take on um, draft picks. They just weren't able to do that because they kept making bad signings and the worst one, which, which we can argue it was, was the worst deal ever. Maybe one day we'll, we'll talk about that, but this has to be one of the worst trades of all time. And they traded Nick Stauskas, who's again, former lottery pick Landry and Thompson, another former lottery pick just to get off of his money so that they could sign Vince Carter, Randolph, George Hill in that time. And they traded them for, and they had to get off of a first round pick. And who did that become? Markel Fultz. So Markel Fultz isn't anything, but they traded what ended up being a first overall pick. And then just to top it all off, one of the value picks that they did have, Bogdan Bogdanovich, who ended up getting picked, I think it was 27th. They lost him for nothing. They, they're starting to get to a point now where they're at critical mass and they've committed. And I, I want to hear from you is, are they a team that they've, you know, they've stumbled on some talent, you know, they, they have Fox, they have, they have Bagley. They got so lucky Halliburton falling to 12, but are they committing too soon necessarily to, to Fox? Do they see enough where this is a team that maybe they just have to, they have to decide that the rebuild is done, that we, we are going to start paying money. Um, I'm not sure if I'm sold on it. Yeah. I think they've forced themselves into that position. Not to say that it, it's not very possible that it might work out for them, but I think they've they've definitely just forced themselves into a decision where they've finally got a bright young talent that is a real capable player in the current in the current NBA, and they're just going to run with him. They're going to try and build the best team they can around him. They they showed their confidence in him. They could have got Luka Doncic in and just ditched him, really, but. They instead showed their confidence in him. They got they got Bagley over him instead. And now they've got Halliburton in this last draft. And obviously we don't know for all we know he might turn out to be a dud, but he looks he looks like he no can, way. He, he he's got serious potential. And if things come together with him and Fox, I mean they could be a real they could re, be a real elite duo in this league. So I think they force themselves into this position, but I don't think it's I, I don't think it's the worst cow in the world to to kind of call time on, on complete rebuilding and, and build around these guys. I think that's that's true. And then there's perhaps the the other side of the coin is if you say you take the approach I'm talking about is maybe you're not convinced that Fox is the guy and you you don't extend him, um, then you run the risk of you know not having your cornerstone. Um, but for them, they really have to learn from their past and keeping their books clean and really knowing when the time is to actually start signing guys. Cause th- this isn't the team yet. I don't think that's ready to go for a deep playoff run. Um, and you got guys who still have some value that are a little bit questionable. What do you do with Bagley? 
I think that's one of the biggest questions here is Bagley just seems like he has the potential to, to score. He has the potential to be sometimes dominant in the paint against smaller big, but he hasn't shown that he could be really a, a fulcrum in the front court defensively or offensively. It's, it seems like he needs a lot around him in order to succeed like that. And as that becomes more exposed, it, I think you have to think about him as an asset and does his value inevitably continue to decline to the point where you have to uh, make another crazy deal <laughs> to get off of him. They've had enough declining value in their previous lottery picks that maybe that's a lesson to be learned here. Maybe you, you figure that, Hey, Halliburton is like you said, he's pin impressive and he looks like a guy that you can, um, build around maybe he's not a superstar but at 19 years old for him to be a glue to an entire team the way he play makes shoots plays defense it's something that you don't see in 19 year olds it's something you don't see in the majority of the nba that's a special talent um so I, I think i wonder what they do here are they smart about some of their assets that they can get good deals for because that is the difference the difference that we have been seeing between the teams that are continuously rebuilding and not quite there and the teams that have managed to make big splashy moves, they, they didn't make those splashy moves without the cap space, without the, the good deals. You invest in some of these guys on lower deals and you sell them for something better. And that's not something that the Kings have been able to do. And we'll see if that's something that they'll manage to work their way towards as the season goes on. Yeah, I mean, uh, at the end of the day, the Sacramento Kings are not really a franchise that can rely on, on building from from trading and from free agency because it's not really a team. It's not really a team or a city even that that people would ex- like experienced NBA players would really get hyped up about going to. They'd want to go to. They're looking at that bigger teams at, at teams like. Boston, LA, Chicago, that sort of thing. So they might look, I think they Bagley and Heald, I think are two parts of their team that they have a bit of value in and now it's just kind of the time now before, maybe even before the trade down this year or possibly in the off season, whether or not they, they move on from them and try and, I don't know if they look to get picks or they just get to look role players that better fit the the duo of of Halliburton and Fox. Yeah, I mean, what Sacramento, man? That's that's California. It they're is, it is. they're they're not LA, but maybe, maybe you don't like the the busyness of LA. You don't like that LA traffic, but you want that uh, that coastal California. There you go, Sacramento's mm-hmm. Sacramento's your place. That's um, but on on the opposite coast here. Um, and a team that I think is in an interestingly similar situation. I, I want you to tell me a little bit about the Charlotte Hornets. I want you to, to explain to me, why are they here right now? <laughs> well, Charlotte, I've been in a bit, a bit, a bit all over the place uh, since, since the turn, turn of uh, the 2000s. So they spent the first part of the decade as the Bobcats uh, managed playoff appearances in 2010 and 2014, but never made any real drastic decisions to try to become contenders 
instead focused on building from the draft and free agency. After Michael Jordan acquired the franchise, he changed the team name back to the Hornets, and they appear to be heading towards brighter days with 2011 draft pick Kemba Walker coming into his own as a star. After signing Jeremy Lamb, Nicholas Batum, and Jeremy Lin in the 2015 offseason, team finished a 15-16 campaign with a record of 48-34, and their best since the original Hornets era. Although they will be beaten in, in seven games by the Miami Heat, their relaxed approach to team building appeared to be starting to work. However, following three straight losing seasons, Walker signed with the Celtics in 2019. Charlotte would finish in ninth place in the East in the COVID-disrupted 1920 season. This earned them the third pick in the 2020 draft where they would select LaMelo Ball. And they also showed aggression in free agency market by signing all-star Gordon Hayward to a four-year $120 million deal. The Hornets appear to be learning from their mistakes with Kemba and want to try and build around their young core, including the player they hope to be their new franchise star in LaMelo. The question now is what's the next move for this team or are they set and is it time to just hand LaMelo the key and hope everything comes together? The next move is to not screw it up. They've been so good at, at screwing it up over the past decade and, <laughs> and they're again, this team and the reason they're in our conversation here is their chronic state of rebuilding um, and how they've done so. And again, we, we want to contrast them, compare them to that last team, the Kings. They've been so bad <laughs> at drafting. Um, again, you have all year. How do you, how do you draft this bad? Michael Kidd Gilchrist drafted second. Cody Zeller, fourth. Noah Vonley picked ninth. Kaminsky, ninth. Malik Monk, ninth. And it's, it's, a, it's a similar situation where it's a team that's, you know, they're trying to contend. They're trying to get in the playoffs and they, don't get close enough where they're picking at the bottom of the lottery and missing every time. <laughs> and the, the question that you, you posited for me is what's the next move? Um, you know, I, I think that's, that's not, I don't think they should be answering that right now. And that's, and the, the reason is, is that they've finally done something right by accident. They've gotten some guys here in the late lottery that are good. You know, Miles Bridges, PJ Washington are two forwards that, you know, that they're not going to be in conversations maybe for, for all the all-star game. Maybe, maybe they make their, their type of player that maybe Miles Bridges makes a, a couple all-star games here and there at the peak of his career. Uh, we'll see for PJ Washington, but they're two guys that you know are going to be very good role players. And when you combine that with LaMelo Ball, who looks like he's all that he's been a uh, advertised i mean he looks like a guy that can you can hand him the keys like you said and run the franchise but looking back on their history it's it's been this plague of poor signings and just clumping up their cap and they've been in cap hell it seems like for the past decade and it, it felt it really felt like when they signed gordon hayward you know every, everyone was holding their breath like oh who's gonna sign gordon hayward to a max contract and of course <laughs> Of course, it was a Charlotte Hornets. Like I, 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 I don't even think they were super connected to him in the off season. But if you were to really put on your tinfoil cap and think about who's the the dumbest team in terms of signing old players who can't figure it out, 
it, it would be the Hornets. But of course, now Gordon Hayward's proven us all wrong that he's looking like a an all-star again. But that's the thing that worries me about this franchise and the decisions they've made is that you know they didn't sign him to a couple of years, you know, to to help push LaMelo along in his early career. They signed him for four years at $120 million. You know, that, that was like, I think, the beyond the peak of his value there. And again, this is the consistent theme of these teams. And, you know, I wonder how much of this is connected with the fact that, like you said, they're not free agent destinations. So you're going to have to pay the, the top dollar for any of these players to show up because, you know, Charlotte's not L.A. Charlotte's not Miami. They're not those big cities, those big markets. And in order to make it worth it, you've got to absolutely pay top dollar for these guys but you know they've also paid top dollar for guys like marvin williams they extended michael kidd gilchrist the guy who couldn't like shoot with the right hand i mean he's a meme for how bad he shoots they signed batum to that five-year 120 million dollar deal and that crazy cap influx here that has reset their cap and that they're just getting over now so it's funny that they finally have have survived that period of of cap hell and then they risk it all again by jumping onto Gordon Hayward's contract. Um, and not just the signings, I mean, the trades that they've made in the past. I mean, they, when they sent expiring deals and Hawes and Hibbert for Miles Plumley, and where is he right now? It, that's a good question. I, I have no idea where Miles Plumley is right now, but he was just beginning a four year, $52 million deal. And then they traded for Howard with two years left in his deal. Then they swapped him for, Timothy Mozgov and then swapped him again for an expensive Biombo. Like there are all these like moves that have not made sense that have just burdened their cap situation. And why do you think Kemba left? They had nothing to build around him because they just, it, it felt like, you know, Hey, we're the small market team. Uh, we have this money and we'll just try and spend it. So like they weren't smart with developing assets. So they've gotten, I don't want to say lucky here, but you know, they finally got it right in terms of drafting. And you hope that, you know, if they stay smart, if they stay the course and they develop these guys and they be smart with the cap, that they can figure something out alongside LaMelo. Because, man, you're right, he looks special. He he looks like a guy that, you know, he's a type of player that stars would want to play next to. He's unselfish. And if he figures it out on the defensive end, he's going to be someone that you can plug a star scorer next to. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing I noticed big on the Hornets is just that they're one of the few small market teams that have kind of been almost determined to to act like a small market team in every way possible. They never they never really made the move to try try and make themselves into something bigger than they were. And the way I've started off this point makes me think I'm going to turn it into a positive. But to be honest. It hasn't really worked for them at all. When, as we saw when when Kemba left, they they got that they got a star and they could have they could have found a way to build a bit of a a bit more of a competitive team, especially in the Eastern Conference around Kemba. But instead, they just kind of went wild with their money. They they drafted poorly. They didn't really ever make any moves to try and coordinate a deal to get kind of some star players in it. It was, it was, it's just been a poorly run franchise and you hope now they've kind of, they've kind of got over that bit of a hump. They've drafted well now, and you just hope that 
they've learned from their mistakes and they can move forward in a, in a much more positive light now with with what we we hope and Charlotte Hornets fans hope will be the star man in Lamelo. Yeah, and I want a number I want to put out here is eighty four million. And that was the amount of cap space that was eaten up by the combination of Batum, Biombo, Zeller, MKG at one time. And <laughs> that was not long ago. That was on the precipice of losing Kemba Walker. And that was, it, it was interesting. If you, if you look back, you look at the reporting, basically all the reporting is like, yeah, we're losing Kemba next year. <laughs> but what do they do? They didn't trade him. They didn't trade him. And that's, uh, that's unforgivable for a franchise that can't sign guys in free agency, except for old Gordon Hayward. They didn't trade their guy at the apex of their, of his um, value. And I want to say that, I mean, the biggest reason for that was because they were hosting the all-star game and they wanted to have their guy there. I mean, he started that year, Kemba did, but that's that's another cautionary tale and you know these are these are all teams that you know we want to figure out what they're doing now we want to figure out where they're going to go in the future and and watch that but also you know they're they're here for a reason and i think it's interesting when we look back on these teams and we we analyze how um their habits have resurfaced over and over again um they have their young player in lamello and they have a couple other young guys and most importantly even though Hayward's making that much, even though Rosier is making that much, who, side note, he's having his best shooting year mm-hmm. in his career. So I'll, I'll give him credit for that. But you look at their, their books, they look pretty clean for once, forever. They finally have some money, but are they going to go crazy and spend it? This is, this is uh, off-season this, this year that doesn't feature a lot of players, but the Hornets have just been infamous for overvaluing people and spending their money because they can um patience and i think that's the the answer ultimately um for what's the next move is you just don't just stop don't do it don't like put the wallet away jordan go go smoke your cigars and then don't do not touch your wallet do not touch the books this offseason and be patient i hope hopefully they can understand that they actually might have a nice young core here like you said yeah yeah absolutely i think it's it's so tough to do when you're trying to make yourselves into something that you're not but i think it could be crucial in the development of ball and the development of this team to just let it settle for the next rest of this season and possibly next season too and then maybe look at what moves can be made from there see if Lamelo is is the guy see see what sort of value Hayward has at that time that that'll be the time to maybe to maybe look at making some moves but as we've said uh, yeah they don't have a history of being too patient or being too clever with making moves or making signings so Yep, yeah, it's all about all about learning from your mistakes. That's what we're meant to do in this life. But uh, let's see if the Hornets can do it. And an interesting thing with with Hayward, right? Like he's proving us wrong that he's still he can still play at an All Star level. And I want to make this as the last point is um, maybe that's an opportunity for them. Um, they if they can prove that he's worth that contract while he's playing there. You think do, is that a is that a guy that you just want to have alongside Lamella to help him to to be on a good team, a solid team, 
or maybe do you cash that out for some more assets with a young team? That's, it's an interesting balance and that's an important question. I, I, I can't think of a, another example where maybe you, you want to shepherd your, your young, good player with having an expensive older guy. And maybe you, you risk having diminishing value in Gordon's contract by having him alongside Lamella just to help him grow. I'm not sure that would, that would be a tough decision to make if, if Gordon Hayward could be had and the price was say draft picks and, and young, young players, do you just continue to add that? That's, that's a call for the, that's a call for the shadow front office to make. <laughs> <laughs> not sure. I trust them to make that, but <laughs> we've, we've laid the land here for, um, for my cat who's trying to join in our, on our podcast here. Thank you very much. We've went the whole time without this happening, but <laughs> we've laid the land here for the Hornets. You've laid the land for the Bulls, the Kings, the Timberwolves, and you know, not, they're not the only teams rebuilding here, but they're teams with major question marks. And you know, a, a lot of the open-ended questions we have here, we want to answer by looking across the league. We want to look at the teams who have been successful and what have been the ways that teams have not just been good, not just competed in the playoffs, but have made their way to the top, have made their way to true contention. And we'll talk about that on next episode. So guys, stay tuned. We're excited to bring this back to you. And until then, I'll see you later, Ronan. Take care, man. joining us on today's episode of coast to coast don't forget to hit us up on instagram and twitter at coast to coast nba podcast to hear your takes discussed right here on the show and remember take every shot and love every moment